I'm Ezra Fieldsmeyer. And I'm Marty Harding. And welcome back to another episode of Animation and Beyond. Yes. This week we are talking about movies with environmental themes. Yes. So related to that, we are going to do a word of the day, and it's a big word today, isn't it, Ezra? I got this yeah. It's time for word of the day, new words, you can say new words for your rhymes and for your wordplay. By the time you leave this video, you'll be smarter than you was before. It's time for word of the day, new Anthropocentrism. Anthropocentrism, yeah. Also known as humanocentrism or human exceptionalism. Anthropocentrism comes from the word anthro. Where else do we hear the word anthro, Ezra? Like anthropomorphic, like anthropomorphic, like creatures or objects. And what does that mean? Where, where a creature or an object is being like a human. Yeah, so anthro means human. And then centrism, which is also comes from a Greek root, obviously relates to the idea of being the center. So humans at the center. Mm-hmm. Why is this word relevant to the theme of environmental movies today, Ezra? Because of the human interaction with animals and creatures. Yeah. A lot of the things that go against environmentalism, so a lot of the things that the films we're going to talk about are calling out, are based in the idea that humans are more important than nature, right? Yeah. Like maybe in your city you live in because of how people live. Absolutely. People may be wasteful in a city or they might take up more space than they need to in a city, destroy more nature in a city. Yeah. So it's often associated with the idea of development, which is a theme definitely in these movies we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So just a note about this. Some people think that anthropocentrism actually supports environmentalism because in order to sustain our species we have to think about ourselves and that's something that all species do is think about themselves in order to survive yeah and i will note that often outside of these explicitly environmental movies you'll see anthropocentrism kind of critiqued in lots of science fiction films where the main characters and the main species might be something that dominates over humans can you think of any movies like that yeah like Like, I guess many science fiction films like Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Or like Planet of the Apes, where aliens or animals or cyborgs become the dominant species over humans. Or Lilo and Stitch. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Any movie that shows that humans can be conquered, I think, is challenging anthropocentrism for our entertainment. So, yeah. With that concept in mind, let's move on into our feature presentation. Yeah, so we're going to talk about some interesting environmental movies. Which one do you want to start with, Ezra? Let's start with WALL-E. WALL-E. What's WALL-E about? It's a film set in the future in in a dystopian world. Uh, about a lonely and curious little robot named Wally, who who's programmed to to be a trash compactor. Yeah, 
Yeah. And this idea was generated by one of the writers, Andrew Stanton, when they were sitting around spitballing ideas. And he asked himself the question, what would happen if humans evacuated Earth, but someone forgot to turn off the last robot? Yes, I know. What an interesting, unique idea. And Wally, because he's mostly silent, is kind of Charlie Chaplin-like because of his comedic talents. Definitely. It's so clever how they create such a funny character that doesn't even say any lines. Yes, I know. Compared to most other animated films I know, it barely has any dialogue. Yeah. So actually, when Jim Reardon and Andrew Stanton were writing that script, they did it mostly visually. They described what was happening, but then they would add, you know, in parentheses, lines to communicate what those beeps were trying to say. So they had attitudes that were being conveyed through their little sounds. Yeah, I know. Interesting. Yeah. So how is this movie environmental, Ezra? The a whole Earth has been polluted and people live in space. Wally one day finds something he's never seen before. A small green thing. A plant and he puts it into a into an old boot. Can you imagine that? That there's no plants left and you find one single plant? Yeah, just a small sapling that he finds. But it's the only living green thing on the planet, which is wild. Yeah, interesting. I know that little does Wally know a robot, which he instantly falls in love with, named Eve, had come to have been sent to Earth to find any trace of life. Yeah. So because humans have destroyed the world, covered it in trash to the extent that it is unlivable, Eva's job mm -hmm. <laughs> is to come back. And again, this is way in the future, yeah. is to come back and see, yeah, if there's any chance that humans could return to Earth. Yes, because it's been really centuries for a really long time, how things have changed. And what has happened to humans since they destroyed the planet with garbage? They've been living in space and they've been adapting to it in a, in a cruise line-like ship called the Axiom, I remember. Yeah, and life on the Axiom looks... Really fun at first glance, but as we learn throughout the movie, it's also missing something. Yes, it missing life and important things, but I do think it's cool and high-tech and exciting. Yeah, it's very high-tech, but there's no nature. The reason why Ollie is an environmental film is that it's cautioning against waste and greed and disregarding our impact on the environment because we could all wind up not being able to inhabit our planet anymore. I get what you're saying, yes. And I remember when Wally stows away onto the ship and follows Eve onto that place in outer space and the captain of the ship finds the plant, but the ship's wheel, who is called autopilot or simply auto, comes up with an evil plan to destroy that plant and make sure humans never return to Earth. That's right. That's the villain. Well, he's not actually a villain. He was just built and programmed that way. That's right. That's right. But it's a it's an evil plan. Well, yes. All right. Anything else you want to say about Wally? Such a, a great and fascinating movie with environmental messages. Definitely. All right. Let's move on into another great movie. This one about real animals, not robots. Over the Hedge. Yes, which I consider to be one of DreamWorks Animation's most underrated movies. I agree. I think we've talked about it before, but Ezra and I both adore this movie. It's loosely based on a comic strip, but definitely not among the most famous movies from DreamWorks. 
No. And that comic strip, which is by Michael Fry and T. Lewis, was always commenting on political issues like population control, global warming. They definitely didn't shy away from serious topics. And while environmental isn't the primary focus of this film, it definitely says something about humans and nature. Like about there's a suburban neighborhood and there's also a forest. I know that also this movie, along with Shark Tale and other DreamWorks films, are now some of the less popular movies, not among the DreamWorks. Definitely. But what about this movie makes it environmental? There's a suburban neighborhood and there's the head of that of that association who's greedy and unpleasant named Gladys Sharp, voiced by Allison Janney who is animal-hating and just selfish and unkind. And a disgusting, hateable, loathsome bully. Cares about no one but herself. Yeah, it's true. She cares about her house more than she cares about anyone else, it seems like. She wants to have this perfect little yard with no animals in it, even though she lives right next to a forest with full of animals. And just wants, also cares about money. Yeah, and money. And so this movie shows, you know, similarly to Wally, a, kind of the disgusting amounts of waste that humans can generate because the animals wind up eating out of these houses' trash cans. But also mm. it shows how silly it is when big suburban communities put up giant hedges to, so that they don't have to be next to the forest that they intentionally built next to. Yes, the main character of this film is a raccoon named RJ, voiced by retired actor Bruce Willis, who makes a deal with a greedy bear named Vincent. That's right. That's why they have to go into the trash cans is to get food so RJ can repay Vincent. And he makes friends with some other forest animals, but later they work as a team to defeat that greedy bear and Gladys Sharp and this guy Dwayne LaFontan, who's called the Verminator, who's most likely a parody of the Terminator. Definitely. I see that connection. <laughs> but I think he was a funny, comical, entertaining villain. He was. This whole movie uses a lot of comedy to kind of make fun of what we are saying about suburbia and the silliness of how humans live and exploit their environment. And there was, I remember Vern the Turtle, who was the leader, who was voiced by the late comedian Gary Shanling, who passed away in 2016. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite lines that I thought was funny and that again comments on how silly humans can be is when a giant SUV drives by the animals and they go, whoa, and someone asks, how many humans does it hold? And RJ says, usually one. <laughs> this film wasn't as popular and it didn't match the success that Cars from Pixar, which is obviously a better known movie, received. No, but that's a great transition to our third movie with an environmental theme, which is Cars 2. The second installment in one of Pixar's most famous franchises. Yeah. So going back to anthropocentrism, in this movie, humans are nowhere to be found. It's just cars. Vehicles, which is a unique idea for one of the most famous things made by Pixar. Definitely. So how does this movie have an environmental theme, Ezra? Well, the hidden main villain of the film, Sir Miles Axelrod, who is the one who started the race, created a fuel called All in All, which at first seems helpful to the environment, but it's actually dangerous. Yeah. And there's a word for that. It's called greenwashing. Have you heard of that before? No, I don't think I have. Greenwashing is when you say something and is environmentally friendly just to sell it and make it popular when it's actually not doing anything for the environment. Which I'd say Axelrod is using greenwashing to sell all in all. 
Yes, I know. And he was voiced by um, gender fluid actor Eddie Izzard. Cool. He was similar to Waternoose from Monsters Incorporated because at first we think he's helping the hero, but he's behind the evil plot all along. Yeah, he is, which is a giant plot twist at the end of the movie where we find out that his plan was to blow up all in all and make people not trust alternative eco-friendly fuels so they wouldn't buy them. Very similar to, to Waternoose from Monsters, Inc., who was just greedy, not helpful, and Bellwether from Zootopia, who was also pretty similar. Yeah, so it's kind of showing how we have to be skeptical, especially of people with that much power, like in the oil industry, because they might not have good intentions. Yes, I know. All right, moving on to our fourth and final movie with environmental theme, The Lorax is probably the most explicitly environmental film. It's based on a book by Dr. Seuss, and it's actually Dr. Seuss's favorite book that he ever wrote. Yeah, yes, and it's one of the most famous books Dr. Seuss did. Definitely. What's it about? About the Lorax, who's an activist and an unusual creature, who meets greedy and kind of obsessed person named the Onceler, who is turning the tufts of these trees into something called a thneed, which could like literally become anything like hats, shirts, socks, shoes, any kind of accessible thing imaginable. Yeah. And so the Wensler is chopping down all of the truffle trees. And what does the Lorax do? He tries to speak for them because the trees don't have tongues. And there are creatures who live there, bear-like creatures called barbalutes, swomy swans, and also hummingfish. Which, note, are combinations of real-world animal names that have been put together. <laughs> I know, yeah. The, well, the film, well, the book was a simple short story. When they made it a film, they had to make it very different. Yeah, they introduced some new characters to carry the plot along, but did stay true to the general plot, which is that the Lorax tries to speak for the trees and stand up for them and make the Onceler preserve the Truffula trees, but the Onceler doesn't listen, right? He cuts the last one down, and the Lorax has to escort all of the animals out of the forest and away, while the Onceler winds up suffering because there's no truffle trees left to support his business. In the original book, first the Barbaloots left, and then the Suomi Swans left, and then the Hummingfish left, but in the film, all of them leave at the same time. Oh, interesting. But the Lorax film, one of the things that made it different is that it focused on a 12-year-old boy named Ted Wiggins who was interested in trees because of his friend, Audrey, who's interested in that kind of stuff. And he goes to see the Onceler, but then he's threatened by the greedy head of the city, Thneedville, O'Hare, who is coming up with an evil plan. And when he gets the seed from the Onceler, he's coming up with a plan to destroy it. Yeah, so backing up, the Onceler tells the young boy the story of the Lorax and then reveals that he has one seed left for a truffle tree. And yeah, Ezra, the O'Hare city leader is trying to get that seed. Aloysius O'Hare, or simply Mr. O'Hare, who's very greedy and just cares about money and wants to sell air, and is very short, a short person too, and is kind of like Barquad from Shrek. Oh yeah, I totally see that connection. And he's not a nice person either. So there's lots of environmental things going on here. Firstly, just the idea that, you know, Cutting down trees is bad. We need trees. And if we cut down all of the trees, that's a huge loss to everyone. And Thneedville, the city that, that the film takes place in, is an artificial pl fake plastic city, and everyone likes it that way. 
Yeah, which is kind of calling attention to what's lost when you don't preserve the environment the way the Lorax is wanting to. I know, yes. Also, it's talking about business and how greed is really, really dangerous. Yes, especially with the evil O'Hare, who, unlike the ones there, was not a, was completely irredeemable and pretty evil and not somebody to trust. Yeah, because the Onesler kind of learned his lesson and is now trying to do a good thing by giving the boy the seed. O'Hare has no good intentions. Yes, he just is a Donald Trump-like dictator who doesn't have any good qualities. Very cold, cold-hearted and selfish. He's trying to profit off the environment without any regard for whether or not it actually benefits the people in his city. I know. And he does get defeated because definitely no one wants to be around such a horrible guy like him. No, which winds up being a win for the truffle trees. And O'Hare, everyone turns their back on him and don't want to be friends with such a horrible, evil person. Definitely. So we do get a happy ending. But I think The Lorax is an important book for any kid to read to understand the concept of greed and the consequences of environmental destruction. Yeah, I know. Cool. So Ezra, I know you had a couple of minor mentions of other movies with loosely environmental themes. Like Bambi, the classic Disney movie, because it has a forest fire and there's man who are hunters who are never shown on screen. Right. And The Fox and the Hound, another classic Disney film, also has that same kind of message. Definitely. And Rio 2, which was the sequel to Rio, also had, was about environmentalism and it was about deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. Another great one. And about the endangered rare Spix's macaws, which the main characters Blue and Jewel are. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great one to end on because it encapsulates the themes that were present in all these movies that we talked about today, which include... The idea that we need to think about waste and that we need to check ourselves when we are wasting and being greedy because those kinds of behaviors aren't sustainable for a long period of time. I forgot to mention also the Simpsons movie, the very the movie based on the popular show The Simpsons, also has environmental messages of not growing things in lakes. Oh, for sure. Because we want to keep nature clean. It's to our advantage. Yes, I know. Because we want to be able to enjoy these really funny, cute animals and these beautiful birds and these really helpful trees that make need. We want to be able to use our planet and not have to abandon it like we do in Wally. -E. Yes, I agree. Such great messages they all have. All right, let's move into trivia. Answer last episode's trivia question about about the Spider Verse. How many animators were involved in the making of Sony Animation's Spider-Man Into the Spider Verse? I don't know how. It was 140 animators, which at the time was the most animators Sony had ever used on a feature film. But I just found out from Ezra that the sequel actually used more than that. How many animators did the sequel use? Like 1,000, more than the first one did. Wow, that's a lot of animators and a big difference from, from how many they used in Into the Spider-Verse. Very cool. I know. This week, we've got a trivia question for you about Wally, -E, one of the movies we talked about today. What famous comedian played 
the live action character in Wally, Shelby Forthright, who was the CEO of the by and large BNL Corporation. If you think you know the answer, be sure to listen to next episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Animation and Beyond. Bye. Goodbye.